Um, I read a story not long ago, and I thought it'd be a good way to start today's message. The story was about three college kids, freshmen. And as I read the story, I was sadly a little reminded of myself in my first couple years of college. You see, these kids, um, they were more interested in the college experience, you could say, than they were in their studies. Did you ever know anybody like that? Were you like that? They were more interested in going to parties and hanging out with their friends and meeting up to play basketball and talking to girls. All those things were more important to them on their list of priorities than their academics ever were. And these guys had made it all the way through. They kind of coasted through their first year of, of class, and they'd come up on finals week. And they found themselves in a little bit of a predicament. They had a problem. You see, their last exam was Thursday morning at 8.30. And those 8.30 classes, if you're in college now, you know there's only two types of people who sign up for those classes. People that are insane or people that forget to register and wait too, too late, and then they have to take whatever's left. These three guys were definitely those latter type people. And the problem was this. They'd been invited to a big end-of-the-year party that was a couple hours away from where they were at a beach house. And the party was late Wednesday night, the night before their science final. So they started talking. What are we going to do? One said, well, I guess we could just not go to the party. No, we're going to the party, right? That's not an option. So another spoke up and said, well, we could go and just drive back really late after the party's over. They thought for a minute. They said, no, that's probably not the smartest and safest idea. So another said, well, let's just get up really early the morning after the party and drive back. Oh, that sounds terrible. Getting up at like 5 to to drive hours back for our exam? No. So they thought for a while, and they, they decided on this. What they would do is they would go to the party, they'd stay overnight, they'd kind of get up whenever they felt like it, and leisurely make their way back to campus. But this was the kicker. On their way back, they would just email their professor and say they rode together and they had a flat tire. Certainly, he'll let us make up the exam, they thought, if we have a flat tire. So that's what they did. They had their plan, they went to the party, they had a great time, they stayed up late, they slept in, they got up and and had breakfast and just started leisurely making their way back toward campus. And as soon as they got on the road, one of them got on their phone and said, listen, professor, we're really sorry, but uh, we were coming and we all rode together this morning, we got a flat tire and here we are on the side of the interstate waiting for a tow and, you know, all the things you'd have to say to pull off a story like that. Would you allow us to make up the exam? Send. Before long, the professor responded, and he said, hey, guys, listen, things happen. I I understand. No problem. Just come in tomorrow, and you can make the exam up. Their plan had worked, right? They were geniuses, they thought. The added bonus now was they even had a little time to study. They hadn't thought at all about this final. They hadn't thought at all about this exam. They'd put no effort into it. But now they had this whole afternoon and evening to kind of cram. Maybe they'd do better in this course than they thought they would. So that's what they did. The next morning they got up bright and early, walked toward class, met their professor. The professor said, listen, guys, I, I just felt really bad for you. You know, I really felt bad that you guys had to go through what you did on what was supposed to be your last day of class. 
He's like, I get it. You guys should be off enjoying your summer right now, and, and here you are. And it had to have been a stressful thing for you to go through. He's like, so this is what I've done. I probably shouldn't have done this, but I consolidated the test. He said, I just have one page for each of you. There's a question on the front, one question on the back. They should be really easy. Just answer them. You'll be on your way. Man, this is working out better than they had ever hoped. And I can, I can just feel that sense of joy and elation as they sat down in different corners of the classroom with their exams and they read the question on the front side of the paper. Who is most famously associated with the formula E equals MC squared? Well, goodness, a music major could answer that. So with all the confidence in the world, they took their pens and wrote Albert Einstein. I can also imagine that just flood of panic as they turned the sheet over and read the second question. Which tire was it? That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty good, isn't it? You see, the professor set this question up in a way that if they were telling the truth, they'd have been able to answer immediately and they'd been on their way enjoying their summer. But if they were lying, if even one of them put a different answer for that second question, it was over, right? It was a trick. It was a trap. It was pretty brilliant. And I started the, the message off today because we have been in this section of the Gospel of Luke in which there's a lot of questions and answers. There's back and forth. There are the religious leaders trying to trick and trap Jesus pretty unsuccessfully. And there's Jesus asking these brilliant questions that they just, they just can't answer, right? So that's where we are. You remember the, the whole section, the whole scene started in the first chapter, um, or the first verse of chapter 20. Jason led us through that. And you could see Jesus had come to the temple. He'd started to throw out people that were taking advantage of those who were coming. He started preaching, and day by day, the crowds grew. Luke says they were hanging on his every word. And you could just feel that the, the religious leaders, those elite who were supposed to have the power, who were supposed to be in charge, were just getting more and more uncomfortable with the situation as the time went on. So finally, in the beginning of, of chapter 20, what do they do? They asked the first question in the series. You remember what they asked? By what authority are you doing this? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to come in here and do what you're doing? And Jesus asks, asks that brilliant question. He said, before I answer that, just answer this question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of human origin? And they thought that was a professor-like question that Jesus asked. He, he trapped them. They had nowhere to go. Because if they would have said from heaven, which they didn't believe to be true, that would have legitimized John the Baptist's ministry and his, his mission and the, the prophecy that he had been given. It would legitimize Jesus because John was pointing people to Jesus. So they, they couldn't answer that. They wouldn't answer that way. But at the same time, they couldn't say, well, it was, it's, he's just making it up. You know, he's a fraud. Why? Because John and Jesus now had begun to develop such a passionate following that the people would have risen up against them and they would have lost any power that they had left. You remember the question from last week. 
So we have that first kind of brilliant question from Jesus, and then it's, it's almost as if the religious leaders take a step back and pause and say, okay, two can play at that game, Jesus. And then they come with a question that Mike spoke about last week. The Pharisees were the first to try their hand. You remember what they asked? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They didn't really care what Jesus thought. It was a trick. It was a trap. If Jesus had simply said, yeah, pay your taxes, well, then they could have used that as fuel for the fire by which to turn the Jewish people against Jesus. They knew that. The Jewish people despised the Roman occupation. It was unthinkable that they had to to be ruled and to pay taxes to, to the Romans. But at the same time, Luke tells us in the beginning of that passage that they were just looking for for information to gather against Jesus so that they could turn him over to the Romans themselves. So if he said, no, don't pay your taxes, hey, they could go right to the Romans and said, you know, listen, this guy over here, I don't know if you've heard, but he's telling us not to pay you any taxes. You You better do something about him. So then Jesus, of course, outmaneuvers them, he outfoxes them, he outsmarts them, and answers brilliantly. They walk away seemingly with their tail kind of between their legs. And now we have a third group or a third question from from a different group of religious people, religious elite people, the Sadducees. And that's where we're going to start today. So our verse is going to be Luke 20, 27 through 38. Luke 20, 27 through 38. Let's go ahead and read it together. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless, the second, and the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Will you say a quick prayer with me before we dive in here? Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you for this um, passage and this scene. And Father, I just pray sincerely that you would help us uh, to be changed by it. Spirit, speak to us through your word this morning and help us to uh, respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. So we can see here that the Sadducees also had an ulterior motive for questioning Jesus. I mean, the insincerity, it just, it oozes off the page when they come and say, teacher, like anyone in the crowd believed that they had any respect or esteem for Jesus. But it's obvious from the, from the very beginning that they 
not only wanted to trap Jesus, not only wanted to gather information against him or to embarrass him in front of the crowd, but they also wanted to elevate their own theological positions and ideas above Jesus's and above the Pharisees and anyone else that was around. They wanted to prove that their interpretations were the right ones. Now you see a little hint of of what the Sadducees were there in the very first verse, verse 27. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees were fairly similar in many different ways. They were both prominent members of Jewish society. They were both uh, elite classes of Jews. They both had power. They both had some level of wealth. The Sadducees were probably a little bit more in the pocket of Rome than were the Pharisees. But the biggest thing that differentiated them was what they believed. It was their theology. It was their doctrine. So the Sadducees very famously didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that people were going to rise from the dead, which is what Jesus and so many other of the Jewish people believed at the time. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in an afterlife at all. Once you die, you cease to exist. They didn't believe in angels or demons. There was really a gaping hole in their theology uh, wherein nothing spiritual really existed. The supernatural was not a part of their thought. They also only believed that the first five books of the Bible were the Bible. Those are the only things they ever referenced. And they come with this question. Now, I don't know about you, but this question to me just seems so outlandishly ridiculous that it's just, I want to laugh when I read it. Seven brothers? I mean, they could have said a thousand brothers. And to their credit, they did use a little bit of Bible to try and prove their point. They, they're referencing a law here that's found in Deuteronomy from Moses called the Leveret Marriage. And you might remember it from Old Testament, Old Testament readings. But essentially what it was, was in that day, if a, a man's brother died and the man uh, the brother had a wife, then that man, it was his responsibility to, to marry his brother's widow. And there were several reasons for that, right? Because um, widows without a husband had real, no real prospects. There was not a lot of good that was going to come their way. They would have no real source of income. They wouldn't be able to, to keep the land that was their husband's if they didn't have children, so they would have become essentially destitute had it not been for Moses's uh, command of the, the leveret marriage. At the same time, it was a, a matter of honor to, to be able to provide a, a child in your brother's name that would continue his family line. So uh, to their credit, to the Sadducees' credit, they were using a little bit of Bible. They were just turning that little bit of Bible into a crazy, hyperbolic, outlandish example that just is you can't even imagine anything like this happening. In their minds, though, this was a question that Jesus couldn't answer. They were trying as hard as they could to reinforce that their positions and their ideas were superior. Jesus, they thought, would have had to answer in one of two ways. Either he would have to agree with us and say that, okay, the resurrection doesn't exist. There's no life after death because you're right. Uh, This would make it illogical. Because you're not going to have one person married to, to seven 
other people. That just doesn't make sense. Yeah, you're right, Sadducees. Or he would have had to say, well, they're all going to be married to the one woman. And they knew he wasn't going to say that either. They had him trapped, or so they thought. Jesus understands, and we should try to understand too this morning, that their primary interest wasn't really in what Jesus' thoughts on marriage in the afterlife were. It was more self-serving than that. The motives were more impure than that. At any rate, Jesus dealt with the facade of their question first, didn't he? They didn't really care about marriage, but Jesus deals with the, the pretense of their question first. He shows them that their question is just a flawed question from the beginning because they're bringing with them assumptions about what these things will look like. They have two main assumptions. Their first is that the Sadducees presuppose that if heaven exists, if there will be a resurrection, then everyone qualifies for it. Right? The problem that they present is only a problem if all seven husbands and the one wife are a part of the resurrection, are a part of the age to come. And Jesus makes it clear that, what does he say? Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come. So Jesus says, well, first of all, you're wrong because not everyone will be there. Unfortunately, Jesus wasn't a universalist. At the same time, they also imagined that, well, if, if the resurrection exists, if heaven is for real, then it's going to be pretty much like it is here, maybe just a little bit better. It's going to be pretty much like it is now, except all the dead people will come back to life. See, they had a mistaken understanding of what Jesus was talking about in the first place. Jesus deals uh, with their question, the pretense of their question, by showing them that they're completely off base in their understanding to begin with, Jesus makes it clear that the age to come is going to be different than this age. It is. And this is a tough passage. We're not going to spend the whole time on marriage and the age to come because that's not what Jesus did. And it's hard to imagine, you know, my wife asked me this week when I told her what passage uh, fell to me to preach on. Um, she said, so are we going to be married in heaven? I said, well, it doesn't seem like Jesus says so. I don't know. Just put your arm around your spouse for a second. <laughs> Hug them a little tighter today. But, but even though you might not have the same institutions and the same setup, things are going to be better. Here's what I know. I'm going to love my wife more deeply and sincerely in the age to come than I, than I ever could now. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around something like that, isn't it? Because we think, man, especially if you have a marriage like mine, there's, there's just not much better in this life than that relationship. I mean, it's one of the most special things we have, so we think, well, certainly, if that's one of the most special things in my life now, it has to exist in the same way in heaven. Well, it doesn't. It's going to be better in heaven. Jonathan Edwards was a very famous preacher and theologian, and he spoke into this in this way. I thought this was a very beautiful quote. He said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven and to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. It's better than fathers and mothers 
husbands, wives, children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These things are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These things are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These things are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. As difficult as it is for us to process that little theological truth that Jesus gives us here, we have to understand that everything, everything will be better in the age to come than it is now. Even the best that this world has to offer will pale in comparison. But again, we've dealt with marriage enough. Let's not get bogged down there. Their primary, their primary concern, the primary reason that they were asking Jesus this question had very little to do with marriage. They didn't really care, again, what Jesus thought. They wanted to trap him with their question. Their real goal was to disprove that the afterlife, the resurrection, existed at all. So Jesus moves to the heart of what they're really after. Is there a resurrection or isn't there? Is there life after this or is there not? Is there heaven or is there not? Let's read again verses 37 and 38, if you will. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses shows that the dead can rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Jesus masterfully interprets scripture and their hearts and shows that they're disjointed. Jesus, there's a couple things that Jesus does here, brilliant things. First of all, uh, Jesus would have had limitless ammunition had he used the entire canon of what we now call the Old Testament to prove that heaven exists, to prove that there is an afterlife. But remember, those Sadducees only believed that the first five books, the books of Moses, were the Bible. So Jesus goes right to what they consider scripture. He goes to Exodus 3, 6 to make his point. You remember what happens in Exodus 3, 6. I know. God meets Moses at the burning bush. Moses is, of course, amazed. And God says, don't come any closer, Moses. God says, take your sandals off, Moses. And what does God say? God says, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, you might be thinking, okay, what does that have to do with anything? I don't get it. So what? And I, I say that because for years I, I knew this passage and I read this passage, but it didn't click what Jesus was actually doing. I didn't actually understand how important what Jesus was saying here was. Jesus uses scripture masterfully. And in this, this little passage, he shows the Sadducees and, of course, all of us how important even a single little word of scripture can be. Do you see what he did? He proves, in a, he proves an afterlife with, with a reference to this, but, but how? You see, what Jesus is telling them is this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lived hundreds of years before Moses. Hundreds of years before Moses. But what does Jesus point them to? He says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see it? 
God didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they were around, but he says I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus makes the point so brilliantly that the Sadducees' theology, biblical interpretation was off. He proves that the afterlife is real. What's the takeaway here, though? I mean, this is a difficult passage to get through. It's a difficult passage to to think about because there's a lot of different stuff going on. We could get bogged down on on talking about marriage and we could get bogged down talking about what what everything will look like in the age to come, what everything will look like in heaven. We could get bogged down on talking about the theological differences between this group and that group. And I think sometimes it's best when we're talking about application, when we're asking God, what do I do with all this, to take that step back. To take a step back and and view the story through a wider lens. Again, we have these people religious people especially who were coming to Jesus very antagonistically trying to trap him trying to to trick him trying to get him to to say something he shouldn't the Pharisees couldn't care less what Jesus's thoughts on taxes were they had an ulterior motive they wanted to get Jesus out of the picture The Sadducees couldn't care less what Jesus said about marriage and the resurrection. They had a very specific reason. They wanted Jesus out of the picture, and they wanted to promote their own ideas above everyone else. Let me ask you this, though. When you approach Jesus, what's your posture? What's your attitude? What's your motive? When you bring your prayers and your pleas and your petitions before God, what's your motive? How is your heart postured? This is what I know to be true, and I'm sure you do as well. You don't have to be antagonistic. You don't have to be like these religious leaders trying to trick and trap Jesus to be asking the wrong questions. So many of us, myself included, primarily myself, I will come before God and I'll say, this is what I want, God, or God, would you do this? And I'll bring him the question, but I'll, I, I will already have the answer established in my mind. So I'm just kind of bringing it to God to lay at his feet and hoping he stamps some approval on it. We don't have to be antagonistic towards God, towards Jesus, to be asking the wrong questions. I can, I can think of many examples of this in my own life. And it's not hard when I'm, when I'm trying to think of a negative example for a sermon or something, that, something like that. I don't have to look at anyone else because I'm me. I have plenty of, of things that I can do wrong and that I have done wrong and that I can share before I ever point a finger at somebody else. But let me share with you a little bit of what I'm saying here. Um, I, I got saved when I was about 15, um, and I, I mean, it was life-changing, of course. My, my life changed for the better, and for a while, I was just jumping through the hoops, going through the motions, doing what Christians did, 
I went off to college, and I, again, I was like those guys in the story. I was more interested in other things. But just a couple years into college, I, I felt this call to ministry that was just so clear that I couldn't do anything else about it. I felt that God wanted me to, to give my life to ministry, and I had absolutely no idea what that would look like, no clue. But when I sensed that call, things in my life started to change. I started to get more serious about serving in my church. I started to, to take on more um, you know, responsibilities. I started to get involved in collegiate ministries. I started to serve more um, different in, in missional capacities and, and just overall service. I changed my major to something I thought would be more beneficial for ministry. I took a, a bunch of religion courses and Greek courses and stuff. I went on my first mission trip. I know many of you have been on mission trips. But that first mission trip I went on wrecked my life. As much as anything I've ever done, it flipped my world upside down. I know you guys have had the same kinds of experience. So as soon as I got back from that that first international mission trip, I said, I'm going to be a missionary. This is it. I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to preach to those who have never heard anything about Jesus. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to live in a hut. I'm going to eat rice and beans. I'm going to ride a donkey around. Whatever I need to do, I'm going to be a missionary. This is it. So for years, about three years, I just prayed over and over, God, where? Show me where. God, show me where you want me to go. God, show me where you want me to go over and over. And during this three-year span, I led five international trips, big trips, and they were just, you know, passing the time until God showed me where he wanted me to go permanently. And they were fun. I I loved doing that. But I, I just kept getting more and more discouraged. I kept getting more and more frustrated. Years Three years, I just kept praying. It was my mantra. God, show me where. God, show me where. I'll pack my bags and leave tomorrow. And then finally, I just, the frustration, the discouragement got overwhelming. And One day I said, God, do you really even want me to be a missionary? Because you're not doing much to help me out. And I didn't hear a voice, but God made it abundantly clear that being an international missionary was my plan. I never called you to go overseas permanently. I said, God, what, what do you mean you didn't call me to go overseas permanently? God, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there are people overseas who've never heard of Jesus. I'm not sure, God, if you understand this, but people across the globe need the gospel, and here I am with my bags packed, my ticket bought, and you're telling me you don't want me to be a missionary? God said, how many people have come with you on these five little trips you've done? I was getting frustrated now. I sat down and counted counted them out, and it was about 100 different people. Some went on the the same trip multiple times, but about 100 people on these five trips that had come overseas. God said, how many people have had that same life-changing experience that you had on your first trip because of what I'm having you do? 
I guess, I guess a lot, God. How many people are more serious and more involved in mission and ministry across the globe and at home now because just of this little work that you're doing? I guess a lot. How many more people have heard the gospel now because of these multiple people going out and doing this? How many more? I guess a lot. I'm just getting more and more frustrated. How many people have surrendered their life to ministry now that were a part of one of these trips? How many people are now living overseas? Uh, Finally, okay, I get it, God. I get it. You're right. I realized something that's very important through this. And that's God will always have a bigger kingdom impact through us than he will with us. He'll always have a bigger kingdom impact through you than he will with you. And that was a frustrating realization to make because why? Because I had been asking the wrong question over and over. My motives weren't especially impure. They weren't especially evil. But I left God out of the equation. I never asked God what he wanted from me. I just said, God, I'm going to be a missionary, okay? Just tell me where. I just kept doing it. But God showed me, and again, it was frustrating, it was hard to deal with, but he showed me he was having a bigger impact through me than he would if I was living in that hut and eating those rice and beans and chasing chickens and riding that donkey. He was going to have a bigger impact in this way through me. And it became much more rewarding when when God finally broke through and helped me to realize that. But my posture was off for years. So I guess my question is, what's your posture? What's your thing that you've been praying for for years and years and years? We'll see one more question that Jesus asks again brilliantly next week. Mark's gospel has this same scene, but Mark tells us there's one other person who comes to Jesus with a question. There's one other person in this scene who comes to Jesus with a question. Luke, of course, highlights the the negative antagonistic people, but Mark wants to let us know that there's one other person. After the Pharisees come and ask about taxes, after the Sadducees come and ask about marriage, there's a person in the crowd who's been listening, and they were a Pharisee themselves, but the more and more Jesus talked, the more and more there was a breakthrough. The more and more... He, like the crowd, began to hang on Jesus' every word. So when the Pharisees came and struck out, when the Sadducees had come and struck out, this person comes to Jesus. I know you know, you've heard, you remember, you've read the question that this person asked Jesus. There was no hint of insincerity. There was no gotcha type snare in the question. He just said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? He honestly wanted to know what Jesus was going to say. Which is the greatest commandment in all the law? You remember how Jesus responded. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two hang all of the law and prophets. Or in other words, every commandment in the entire scripture is founded upon these two, love God and love others. This person came to Jesus and he had the appropriate posture. He asked a question, not not having an answer already laid out for Jesus to just agree with him on, but he genuinely wanted to know what Jesus would say. So again, my question for you this morning is a simple one. What have you been praying for? What have you been pleading for? What have you been coming to God with continuously? Maybe maybe for years. Maybe you've been praying for that relationship that you've longed for for years and it just has never come. Maybe you've been praying for a career change over and over and you just can't handle the grind anymore and something's got to give but nothing, nothing has happened. Maybe in the middle of this pandemic, you're praying to to find a new job because you've lost yours and you just keep praying and you keep applying and you keep, and nothing seems to be working. Maybe you're praying for healing. Maybe you're praying for restoration. Maybe you're praying for peace. Whatever the case is, you can fill in the blank. If you're not getting a breakthrough, if you're not getting the response that you want, Maybe it's time to just pause. Maybe it's time to take a deep breath. Maybe it's time to ask the the dangerous question. The right question. God, what is it you want? What is it you want? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this passage and all that it holds. God, I know personally and for many of us, we've prayed, we've pled, we've begged. We have our questions. We'll ask them again and again. We'll come to you again and again. But God, perhaps our posture isn't where it needs to be. Perhaps we're just asking the wrong questions altogether. I pray that this morning you'll help us to pause, to maybe reformulate our questions or ask entirely new ones. God, we know that you want to change us from the inside out. You want to make us new creations. So, Father, our prayer this morning is simply this. Continue to help our will and our ideas and our theology and our lifestyle and all that. Continue to help us align more and more with you and what you want for us, both individually and as Apex. We love you for all that you've done for us, God. Help us to to live our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.